Turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 4. We're coming into the new year in just several hours here. And in our men's group Saturday morning study, uh, we've been thinking about and looking at the parables of Jesus. We've just begun doing that. Um, We've had some great discussions, and I've been thinking further about these, and it seemed to me appropriate to bring some of that study and discussion uh, to bear on the New Year as we think about what it might mean for us as Christians, as those united to Christ, to uh, be looking ahead uh, to the New Year. So we're going to read a couple of parables that several weeks ago the the men's uh, study looked at, uh, beginning with verse 26, Mark chapter 4. Verse 26, hear God's holy word. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Well, in a tradition that globally apparently stretches back millennia, uh, tens of millions of Americans still today have made uh, New Year's resolutions uh, for 2024. And some top categories apparently of resolutions include uh, saving money or spending less money. Uh, getting more money either way, Um, losing weight, exercising, improving mental health, uh, using social media less, and so on. Um, It's it's interesting to see uh, change in in New Year's resolutions over time. So uh, in the 19th century, for example, in in newspapers, uh, evidenced repeatedly, for example, resolution that people would read less. Uh, which is interesting because it's kind of opposite to uh, kind of resolution people make uh, at times today. Novels, especially in their availability, were exploding, and um, reading too much was seen as something of a vice at times in the 19th century. And so people resolved to read less. Uh, in the early 20th century, uh, a number of uh, a good number of people, again, evidenced in the newspapers, resolved to quit roller skating. Uh, again, somewhat opposite to typical resolutions today, to be outside more, to exercise more. But uh, roller skating was viewed as rather dangerous activity. Uh, it was thought for a time to uh, deform your limbs if you did it too much and, and to uh, mess up your gait as well, the way you walked. So people resolved to stop it. Uh, but there's a, there's a broader contrast that it's interesting to note historically as well. And at the risk of committing the sort of good old days fallacy, right? Our tendency to always look back on the past and think that things were better and things are always degrading, which is not true theologically or historically, uh, generally. 
Yet I think this is a legitimate clear pattern and a change in this area. Resolutions today, New Year's resolutions, are almost entirely self-focused. Right? They're self-focused, they're focused on self-improvement, self-effort, uh, becoming a better person, uh, gaining money or health or social career and success and so on. Not all the bad, these are bad things by any means, uh, but in centuries past, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, many New Year's resolutions, not all, there, there were resolutions much like ours today, but many of them focused more uh, on others, on treatment of others. And the whole tradition was often more of a public and, and communal affair, both in the sense of making commitments uh, together as a community or as a church, something like that, um, and in the sense of making commitments publicly. You'd tell other people what your resolution was as, as a, a sort of um, shared accountability in it. Uh, again, that, that's a contrast to today, uh, where we make promises to ourselves for ourselves and we keep ourselves accountable to them. Um, one example of this, and this, this uh, historically, <clears throat> historical practice has actually apparently been revived somewhat, not in my experience, but in some, some uh, corners of Christianity. Uh, there's a tradition that arose with, with Wesley, uh, and then Methodism falling out of that, uh, which was to have on New Year's Eve what, what they originally called a covenant renewal service uh, of worship. And then... It went on to often be called a watch night service. Uh, maybe you've heard of that. Um, and and it, was, it was held sort of, it was sort of like having a, a Reformation Day service instead of Halloween. Right? It, was, it replaced usual New Year's Eve revelries um, uh, for a good time in history uh, in, that, in that Christian tradition. And the emphasis was on humbly praying to God about the year ahead and, and devoting it to him. And making commitments together or public commitments uh, about the year ahead. Um, again, in contrast, it's notable today that, that for many modern New Year's resolutions, surveys consistently show something like 9% of Americans keep their uh, resolution that they've made to themselves. 23% uh, fail in the first week. Uh, and something like 43% fail in January uh, in the first month. These expectations and longings fall flat. And so a big part of the reason I want to look at parables this morning uh, is they, they have to do with, and even if it's in the background, uh, longings and expectations for the kingdom of God, looking to the future, uh, much as we, we tend to do uh, at, at New Year's uh, with, with good reason. Uh, the parables largely illustrate, uh, as Jesus tells them, the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is, what, it, what it's like. And you'll see that the passage we read this morning begins, as Jesus often does, the kingdom of God is like, uh, is like this situation that Jesus lays out. And so it's um, good that we might pause just for a moment and, and ask, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, we did that in our, our men's study several weeks ago. What is the kingdom of God? It's a familiar phrase in the Gospels, but maybe a little hard to nail down. I, I think maybe the best really short, concise definition of the kingdom of God is God's saving rule and power in the world. God's saving rule and power in the world. So it, it doesn't speak of God's uh, just absolute sovereignty. There's a sense in which God is, is king. He's, he's sovereign over all things, over all places, all people, in all times. But the kingdom of God concept in the Gospels is, is more narrow than that. It's God's saving rule. So it's not visible everywhere. 
You can be outside of the kingdom, not under the kingdom. Uh, you're, You're invited to enter into the kingdom. And so God's kingdom, in that sense, is, is made visible as it changes people's hearts. It's, it's visible largely in the church, uh, where God has changed people's hearts and called people together. It, it, com- it encompasses God's promises and blessings, especially as they'll be fully revealed when Jesus returns again. Right? And there'll be nothing in the world uh, except the kingdom of God. Everything, then, will be the kingdom of God uh, when all... All evil is removed. removed. Any, any rebellion against him is, is removed. And that's the goal that history is pushing towards. So the parables answer, how is God working toward that end? How, he's, how is he bringing about the saving, his saving rule in people's lives? And how is that growing in the world? And the, the parables um, <clears throat> often point to ways the kingdom works in unexpected ways. Uh, ways that it works contrary to our usual ways of thinking um, or, or operating. And you think about the disciples' expectations, their their longings and expectations for the kingdom that that lay behind these parables. Um, They they had expectations that came straight from God's promises in the Old Testament. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. They had this vision of the whole world worshiping the Lord. Psalm 72 about God's king. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, A king ruling over the entire earth. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 pictures uh, the Messiah receiving a kingdom from the Father. And all peoples, nations, and languages serving him. And his dominion being an everlasting dominion. His kingdom never being destroyed. So the the Jewish expectation came to be of, of a kingdom... The Messiah who would come and set up very quickly and powerfully uh, this kingdom. Uh, and, and all would be wonderful and peaceful and prosperous for Israel. And so Jesus tells the parables largely to say that's not how it's going to work. Um, not yet. And so he uses here in these parables we read this morning the image of, of a seed. Uh, he compares the kingdom to a seed, this tiny speck of of dead organic matter that could be mistaken for a grain of sand or a piece of dirt. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like the majestic mountains or is like this great king and this great kingdom. It's like a seed, a tiny, seemingly insignificant thing. Because despite these, these promises and expectations that God truly gives about the kingdom, ultimately, what were the disciples seeing? Well, they, just, they saw, as we, as we considered last week, a Messiah born in obscurity and poverty with no fanfare. And then they saw him continue in poverty uh, and, and doing nothing to gather power and establish himself as a king. And they'll soon see him executed as a criminal. And all of his friends desert him. Until Jesus returns, all of his enemies are put under his feet and sin is no more. The kingdom of God until then does not preclude sadness and suffering. And struggle with sin. It doesn't mean a life of victory and a trajectory of prosperity. It doesn't mean we won't wonder at times, where is the kingdom? What are we supposed to be seeing? When is Jesus coming? Why are these things happening? What is God doing? And so Jesus prepares the disciples and you and me for that to assure us that God is at work. In the parables, he assures, even through smallness and weakness 
and unexpected things and disappointing things and ordinary people and timing that doesn't match what we would want or what we would plan. And so I'd like to consider these parables and their, their lessons, their meaning generally, and then close with some application as we're looking to uh, the new year. So looking at the first parable and number one <clears throat> on your outline, and we might call this the parable of the seed growing secretly. And the summary of its lesson is trusting God when you can't see or understand how he's working. I want to look at three, three more particular observations or points about the seed uh, in this parable. Let's hear the parable again, verse 26. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. The first observation about the seed is it grows slowly and imperceptibly. So the farmer plants the seed, and, and we understand this involves soil and light and water and so on. But then day after day, he doesn't see it grow. He has no idea how it grows. It's invisible, and he goes to sleep and gets up and sleeps again and, and leaves the seed in the ground. These incredible microscopic processes of growth are taking place. And of course, today we have a much greater understanding of, of uh, plant biology and cell division and, and photosynthesis and, and all these sorts of things. In the ancient world, all of this was a complete mystery, completely under, unknown. Right? And yet, in either case, it's still totally amazing and invisible. Right? And that's, that's a large part of the point of the parable here, is that it's invisible. E even, once, even once the seed begins to grow... Right? And you have a little, a little shoot of a plant coming out. You still, you can stare at it and you can't see it grow. Right? You can't watch it grow. You can't uh, catch it at the right time growing. Right? You can't see it grow, but it's, it's slow and microscopic. And yet many seeds become thousands of times bigger uh, in their plant uh, than they were as a seed. And again, the comparison is with God's kingdom, God's saving power, his his transforming lives and, and advancing his saving power until Jesus returns. To our estimation, Jesus is saying, that will happen slowly, uh, imperceptibly. It, it'll be invisible at times. Often we can't see or understand how the kingdom of God is working. It seems to be buried or very slow. It, whether we're talking about large scale, the, the kingdom or, or the church as, as making the kingdom visible or, or individually. We're thinking about someone else or, or even ourselves. Often that work, that, that growth is, is slow. It might seem to be stagnant, maybe even going backwards. Jesus is assuring you his work in the kingdom is growing. He is working. Uh, though you can't see it at times or see how or where or in what way. It doesn't grow the way we're accustomed to other uh, entities growing uh, in power or influence in this world. Right? Nations and empires grow as they gain political dominance or economic power or military strength. Uh, corporations grow as they gain market share, or, uh, gain capital and talent and so on. And, and these are simply not the tools of the kingdom of God. And our, our hopes, our emotions, our faith is misdirected when we focus uh, in our lives or in the church on those sorts of things, or on, on numbers of people, or cultural influence, or money, or political power, as if these were measures 
of the reality of the kingdom of God or the power of the kingdom of God. Certainly, God can use various of those things that I've just mentioned and does at times in ways. But they're not measures of the reality of God's promise. God's kingdom ultimately advances by his word. That works invisibly in hearts, his, his power working in ways we often can't see or understand. So the seed grows slowly and invisibly. Secondly, letter B, it grows largely apart from human effort, as does the kingdom. Verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Now the application here is not that God doesn't call you to faithfulness or to, to meaningful service, to working hard for his kingdom, that you're just to, uh, like the farmer, just go to sleep and say, what can I do? Uh, no, the point is simply that the determining factor in the growth of the seed, the determining factor in the growth of the kingdom is the power of God. It, it's the will of King Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't need your service, ultimately. Jesus is not dependent, beholden, to your agenda uh, or your timing or your plans. Uh, the Pharisees thought that the coming of the kingdom had a lot to do with their own uh, personal being holy enough in, in a legalistic way. The, the zealots thought it had to do with their bringing about revolution. The advance and the growth of the kingdom of God, the success of the gospel depends on the power and the blessing of, of God through the gospel alone. Again, that shouldn't push you away or discourage you from taking part or serving eagerly. Alongside of that, it should encourage you all the more to answer the privilege of joining in that process. Right? Serving the king as he grows the kingdom by his power. But perhaps more than anything, it, it should drive you to prayer. Right? The fact that this depends entirely on, on God should drive you to prayer for the things you ought to be longing for most. And thirdly, let her see uh, about the seed. It's, it's harvested with perfect timing. With perfect timing. Verse 29. <clears throat> when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So at some point, the plant, the crop is ready. And in, in agriculture, there often is a need for, for a good, quick judgment of a farmer of when, when the harvest needs to be brought in. Right? So it doesn't go bad or it doesn't get eaten. In some ways, that's a little easier today with technology, but still, uh, farmers have to get out there before a big rain makes it too muddy for the tractor or before a hailstorm ruins your wheat or something like that. And so, Jesus uses the word immediately. Uh, immediately, it's harvested. The end of history, the return of Jesus in judgment is often in the scriptures referred to as a harvest. When Jesus comes to give his people full and final peace and salvation, Renew the earth, judge. Uh, Jesus won't come a moment too late, as he pictures in this parable. He won't delay a nanosecond longer than necessary in his perfect plan. Now, we might wrestle with that plan, that timing, like the, the people that, that Peter wrote to in Second Peter. Uh, he, he essentially quotes them, their question, where, where, is, where is the coming of the Lord Jesus? Where is his coming? It's promised. How, mu how much longer is he going to let us struggle with disease and persecution and death and brokenness? And Peter answers that in part by saying he, it's not because he's delayed, 
Because he's unfaithful, because something's gone wrong, it's because he's merciful, is Peter's answer. He's allowing more and more people to come to repentance, to come into the kingdom of God. He's also making his church more holy, making the church more dependent on him as we wrestle with the consequences of sin and learn to trust him more fully and look more eagerly for his coming. So when the time he has planned comes, he will return, not a second later than is good and right uh, for his glory and our good. Again, encouragement is when you can't see the gracious, sovereign power of God at work or understand how it is. And again, verse 27 says explicitly, the farmer doesn't know how the seed is growing. He doesn't need to know. We don't need to know everything about how God is at work or what his plan is. But know that he is at work. Know that it doesn't depend on you. Um, that he will come at exactly the right moment without delay. Well, let's look at the other parable as well. Secondly, uh, num- number two on your outline and some related lessons, the parable of the mustard seed. And we might summarize the, the similar uh, parable here in some ways as trust God in weakness. Let's hear the parable again. Uh, verse 31. Where he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is grown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. Um, the mustard seed is not the, literally the smallest seed in the world that's known. The, the, the scene here is, is just an average family's garden, and it very well might be the smallest seed that you would use uh, in your garden in that day. And, and really the point is that it's proverbially small. Uh, it's, it's a tiny thing. We, we use small things that aren't the smallest things that we know, and yet they're, proverbially we use them to speak of the smallest thing in a, pers- in a particular setting, right? Like we might say, uh, little Ethan is just a little peanut, right? Well, a peanut is not the smallest thing that we know of, right? But it's proverbially small. Right, the smallest, maybe the smallest person among us. Um, this, the, the mustard seed is similar. It's proverbially small, and it is very small. You might miss it. You might step on it. It's so small and insignificant. Well, even though we know much more, comparing that to the kingdom, we know much more after the resurrection of Christ. We know of uh, the ascended Christ, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the spread of the gospel around the world since then, we still don't see the kingdom in ways that we might expect or hope. Even though we've, in some sense, had the benefit of seeing this seed grow for 2,000 years, we still see the kingdom in terms of smallness and apparent weakness in many ways. God's enemies are still strong, not judged. Creation still groans under the curse. Sin still persists in our lives. We, we look around, we see backslidden Christians, we see missions that seem unfruitful, we see Christians who are persecuted, the gospel often falls on deaf ears, uh, we see churches close, we see growing and powerful evil in the world in various ways. And so we might think, is, is preaching the gospel here or elsewhere each week really working? Is this really part of the glorious kingdom that Jesus promised? What of closed churches or our relatively small congregation? Or what are the ways that we see the kingdom of Satan growing and thriving in the world? These are the kinds of 
questions and stumbling blocks Jesus is compassionately addressing in this parable. As we look on, read on, another, so the, the, the first, uh, first aspect of this parable is the, those small beginnings. But as we go on, letter B, we see blessed endings. Blessed endings. Verse 32 again, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. That tiny little mustard seed, the smallest seed you might use in a garden at that time, becomes the largest thing that would be in a garden. Uh, a, a, a huge bush or a small tree, something like that, 10 feet, even 15 feet tall. And again, the point is not that it becomes the biggest tree in the world here, the biggest tree in your garden. The emphasis is really on the contrast between the seed and what it becomes. Right? If you didn't know what a seed was, uh, you would assume it was basically something like uh, a little grain of sand, a little pebble with no potential. It could be crushed and become smaller, but there's no way it could become bigger. If, if you're evaluating a company as to whether to invest in it, right, you're going to want to know about its financial performance and its profits, about its market share, about its total valuation, about the risks involved in the industry, and so on. Jesus is saying these kinds of evaluations that generally work in the world, they're wise, don't work with the way God works, with the kingdom, with the tools of the kingdom, with its value, with the certain certainty of its outcome. Verse 32 also describes the large branches and birds of the air coming to nest in it, uh, certainly picturing in the end what the kingdom becomes for the whole world, security and blessing to people from all over the world. And this is almost certainly drawn straight from what, what Elder Tom read earlier from Ezekiel 17, the sort of various parables and allegories there in Ezekiel 17. Uh, one is the, the allegory of Israel as a giant cedar tree, right? a huge cedar tree, and then an eagle comes. The eagle, this is Nebuchadnezzar as an eagle, comes along and rips off the top little branch. And this symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar taking Israel's king away, cutting off the king from Jerusalem, carrying him off to Babylon. And then the whole tree is ruined. The whole tree falls down and is ruined. But then we read, Thus says the Lord, I myself will take that sprig, that little branch, from the lofty top of the cedar. I'll set it out. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, <clears throat> that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, I make high the low tree, I dry up the green tree, I make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. So there is a, a vision of the kingdom of God. Uh, not of, of a huge and impressive tree that has always been there, right? but of God taking a little twig, uh, dried out, dead twigs, and making them great, uh, a great cedar, a blessing to the whole world. God didn't uh, call mighty Egypt as his family, as his people. He called the little slave nation out of Egypt. Right? Jesus builds the church on the ministry of fishermen and tax collectors and Saul, the persecutor of the church. Uh, God strengthens the church as they share in his sufferings. Jesus uses 
persecution and poverty and lack of resources to show how powerful his word is, so how faithful he is. Right? Well, with these observations, let's, let's consider a few applications then as we look to the new year. <clears throat> Looking at number three on your outline. My first encouragement for you this morning is to embrace the ordinary or the small this year. To embrace the ordinary and the small. God works in ordinary and common people like you and like me. And circumstances like yours. He works through small things. Through disappointing things. Um, New Year's resolutions, again, are often about great expectations. Right? Achievements. Climbing the corporate ladder or building the business or becoming a better you. Wanting more, wanting better. Again, not all that is necessarily bad at all. Um, but to the degree that those sentiments keep us from appreciating the way and the fact that God often works through the ordinary, through the small, through the disappointing, through the painful, to that degree it, it leads us away from a Christian worldview and expectations. God is working in and through your everyday faithfulness. Uh, sometimes he works in big and dramatic ways, but not usually. In Zechariah chapter 4, it describes the, the, um, some of the exiles coming back to Jerusalem after the exile. And they come back to a depressing scene. Right? Jerusalem is not what they left. Right? It's a mess. The walls are torn down. The temple is gone, destroyed. And that's where God warns about despising the day of small things. Because he promised he would rebuild and bless his people. He promises there that it would... Uh, also, uh, famously, not be by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Uh, God often allows disappointments to remind us that this is his kingdom. This is his work. We'll, we'll come back to that theme a bit next week in looking at Psalm 30. But the more, sometimes the more money, the more worldly security, the more uh, impressive our, our buildings or our ministries in the church, none of these things are bad at all. But sometimes the more we have them, the more danger we're in of supposing that it's by our power, by our shrewdness, by our talents, by our fundraising or whatever. Secondly, I want to encourage you to cultivate a vision for the kingdom of God this year. To have a vision of the kingdom of God, of, of what it will be, of what you and I are working toward and are a part of. Uh, even though now in smallness, it might seem contradictory in some ways to the, the previous uh, encouragement I just gave, but not if we're keeping the, the fullness of God's kingdom and his promises, what they will be, and, and the present reality, the process in, in their proper place. The return of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth are to be a, a constant encouragement and, and motivation for us and hope. Uh, one one kingdom-minded resolution you might have that people off Christians often have for the New Year is reading the reading your Bible. Reading the scriptures, um, that can be especially profitable, uh, maybe in a, a time and, and place that's neglected the Old Testament. Read, read the prophets and the Psalms to catch a vision for the kingdom of God um, that can motivate you. Here are a couple of those visions. Habakkuk chapter 2 is where we read that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, what an encouraging vision. Of, of what we are a part and working towards as God's people, uh, though we don't see it yet uh, in fullness. Psalm 72, 
uh, speaks of the whole earth filled with the glory of the Christ. Uh, Isaiah 60, the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 65, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 66, God says he will extend peace to his people like a river. And we could go on and on. This is, this is the tree that the kingdom of God will become um, and is becoming. And that we participate in uh, growing towards, in a sense, uh, in this coming year. Uh, let that be part of our vision. Uh, thirdly, letter C, I want to encourage you to invest in the kingdom this year. To invest in the kingdom. Again, <clears throat> Zechariah 4, don't despise the day of small things and your trust of what God is doing and what his kingdom is and will be. Uh, think of what became in the 90s of a small online bookstore that started out with the name Cadabra. I brought this up a, a while back, but when Cadabra, this little store, was still very small, a, a lawyer called the owner and said, your, your business name sounds a lot like Cadaver. You really should change it. And so Jeff Bezos changed it to Amazon. And of course, one of the richest men, one of the power, most powerful, richest companies in the world. Now, and this, this connects significantly to the previous point of having a vision for the kingdom of God. What you do now, we understand that what we do now in ordinary things, in ordinary lives, in everyday faithfulness, but in the context of and for the good of the kingdom of God, is lasting. Right? Our, our seeds, in a sense, uh, growing in and, and for the kingdom of God. Uh, every decision you make, every pain you endure, every mistake you make, every sacrifice, every ordinary day uh, are seeds, in a sense. And it has significance forever and will, in some sense, become part of that, that great tree. The kingdom of God endures forever. There's nothing that, that compares to it. No... No investment in the biggest, most successful company we could think of that compares with the riches and the blessings of the kingdom of God. Right? Peace forever, a perfect creation without suffering, a perfect communion with God forever. So invest in the kingdom of God as a goal for this coming year. Invest in the kingdom. And this is not to divide up life as if, you know, this is... This is the kingdom part of your life, and then you have the rest of your life over here. Put your joy, your hope, your time, your effort in the kingdom. Again, not in a, not in a uh, divided way. This doesn't mean you spend all day every day at church or, or uh, in prayer or something like that, as if that is simply investing in the kingdom. Certainly it does mean investing in, in the local body of Christ as part of investing in the, in the kingdom of God, but it applies to all of life, right? The way you see your work, the way you see your home life, your relationships, the way you view sleep and leisure, all of it has to do with the kingdom of God, investing in the kingdom of God. Trust the Lord, obey the Lord, hope in the Lord, and all these things. Uh, in significant ways for the believer who's received uh, lavish and, and undeserved grace from God, uh, investing in the kingdom means investing in other people. Investing in other people. Uh, make that a resolution to the glory of God. Uh, Forbes magazine just this week put out a, a list of, uh, based on surveys, I guess, the top 14 um, uh, New Year's resolutions, categories of resolutions uh, with, with percentages. So I guess the 14 encompassed 99 point whatever percentage of the resolutions. And I noted that all but one, 13 out of the 14, 
The one had to do with spending time with family, which is great. Uh, But all the rest of them, all but one, were entirely self-focused. So here's a way we can show Christ. Invest in his kingdom by investing in others. And fourthly and finally, I want to encourage you this year to rest in Christ. To rest in Christ. There are significant ways in which the life of Christ calls and spurs us to action. Uh, spurs us to give ourselves sacrificially to cultivate talents and opportunities the Lord has put before us to pour ourselves out for others. But as a sort of balance to that, uh, the kingdom of God, based on the the death of Christ and and his unconditional grace to you, doing everything for you in your salvation, calls you first to rest in Christ. Uh, Something pictured like the, the farmer in the first parable here. Uh, leaving the growth of the seed to the soil, right, and, and sleeping even, not having to know how it works. It calls you first to rest in Christ. It calls you away from self-reliance. Uh, Jesus was calling the disciples here both to a, a smaller view of themselves and, and their own ability and their own striving, and at the same time a larger view of the kingdom of God and his grace and his power. To put these things together as you look to the new year. Your, your busyness, your tiredness, your working hard, your fighting sin. Put it together with, with the bigness of God's kingdom and his grace and his love towards you. One of the interesting trends in newspaper cartoons in the 19th century regarding New Year's resolutions was a general pessimism uh, in most of those cartoons about, about the whole idea of making resolutions because of how they tend to fail. And it made me think, in some sense, there's a healthy pessimism as Christians that we ought to have in our, our visions, our planning, the details of, of the day, the week, the, the month, the year ahead, as we acknowledge our weakness, our fickleness, our sinfulness, and just the fact that there's so much we don't know. All right, a healthy realism acknowledging all that we are inadequate for, how much we don't know, how often we fall short of the glory of God in our callings, and our planning. Uh, in our study of church history in the adult class, uh, a number of months ago, we, we studied for a week or two Jonathan Edwards, and one of the things he's remembered for is his resolutions. They're not New Year's resolutions, but he made a resolution now and then through his life, collected, I don't know, 70 or 80 of them uh, in, in this notebook uh, by the end of his life. And uh, they focus much on his own weaknesses, his own sinful tendencies. They're not all about saving money and quitting smoking and things like that. They're um, focusing on his weaknesses, his need for God's grace, and, and pairing that with the call of Christ to strive for what is good and right. I think it's a model of resolution for us. So again, my final encouragement is, is resolve this year to rest in Christ, to rest more in Christ, not so much in what you do, Uh, But first, to know better what is the depth and height and breadth of his love for you, his power towards you, uh, and not to strive simply in your own expectations and your own strength and your own goals, uh, but his. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would uh, apply your word to our hearts and our lives this morning. Uh, Give us a a full trust in you in the day of small things. Uh, Give us a joy and a hope in your kingdom 
and an eagerness to be part of what you are doing. Lord, let our simple prayers, our worship, our witnessing, our our ordinary everyday faithfulness in all of our vocations uh, be seeds, as it were, uh, one day to be part of that, that glorious and eternal tree. Help us to see it that way and to have a, a vision of your kingdom that motivates us uh, in love for you each day. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.